Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a Daily Planet Productions podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward while those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and I am calling to order the court on the matter of the crimes of my co-host, Scott D. Wait, that's too obvious. Let's go with S. Daly. Uh, yes, Your Honor. I definitely killed all those people. Uh, 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 let's not get ahead of ourselves. If you go to jail, you can't continue to host this show. Oh, well, in that case, I fully retract my confession. <laughs> As you said, this is the podcast where you and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of creepy shower glaring, spoiler-filled courtrooms, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week we begin Arc 7 Torch with chapters 7.1 and 7.2, and we get um, Victoria visiting one therapist, and then another therapist, and also uh, everyone heads to court to see the consequences of Rain's action. And, man, I gotta say, um, after a very action-packed last couple of arcs, we've started this one off with things, you know, a little calmer, a little a little slower, and um, it's the kind of stuff that I come to this book for. I think Chapter 7.2, man, that just has everything I love out of these stories. Yeah, spoiler, I think we both love 7.2. Um, I can't wait to get to it. Yeah, we got a, a packed episode this week, The like 20 pages of notes, uh, lots of stuff to talk about. Yeah. So announcements this week. Uh, well, we're late again, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Sorry um, about that. We got sick. Yep. We've been. We've both been sick this last week, uh, and this is late. Weaver Dice will also be out late for the same reason. But uh, we did record that on uh, Sunday night, so look forward to that. Uh, and now for the community spotlight, where we read what people wrote from last week's thread, and the discussion question from last week was. How do you think Wildbow successfully manages to hold tension across entire chapters like he does in 6.9? Do tonally incongruent characters like the anime squad hurt or help this? Uh, and we got a number of, of great answers, some of which I, I was like, yeah, I didn't think of that, but that's exactly right. And uh, without further ado, uh, from Shinichi07, uh, they point out uh, the so-called carrot and stick method that, that Wildbow employs by interleaving moments of absurdity like the anime squad, which invites you to laugh and relax your guard so that he can then hit you harder with the next moment where the stress level is ratcheted up again. Yeah, that was a very, I, I, I don't think I ever had described it as the carrot stick method, but I think that's very, that's very true. Yeah, that's, that's kind of how I was viewing it. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I think it's doing more than that. Yeah. Uh, Budagami says we don't know what the threat is, only that it's big. So that really helps ratchet up the tension. The specific nature of the threat the team will be attacking is unknown. Other similar operations are taking place elsewhere, so we're also thinking about those and nervous about them. Even after things start going wrong, the uncertainty is maintained. We don't know if other beloved characters have bit the dust or not. So yeah, that's a very good point to how the tension is maintained through all of it. So even, even as information is revealed, other tensions are ratcheting up or other tensions have not paid off yet so you're just maintaining that line and that's a, a very good point yeah I, the, my favorite thing about this comment is this focus on uncertainty and how that no matter what we've resolved there's still more uncertainty um and it's about important things and it's not that we're dreading some specific thing happening it's that we don't know what's going to happen and i think that's a that's a good thing to keep track of executioner says that they don't think 
that the anime squad is totally incongruent. The anime squad is morbid, like March, and the flashy attire only makes them seem more unhinged. Um, quote, the, the tension is still there, just buried deeper. Uh, but th- then they do say there is a degree of lightness here, which keeps the tension from getting too high and breaking. Um, I think that's basically t- two different things that I like. I like both of those things. So the, the se- I'm going to take the second one first, which is, which is that, yeah, like it's really easy to like, if you just jam the tension throttle in for the whole chapter, that, that actually becomes exhausting and you lose your immersion into the, into the story. And, um, and, and it's, it's, it's worse. Like you, you actually need to let off on the tension a little bit, uh, in exactly this way so that you can, um, then bring it up again. Uh, and, and, and as for, as for them not being totally incongruent, we actually had a couple of comments saying they're not totally incongruent. And I mean, I, I think there may be a case that they're not actually, I think maybe a better word, uh, would have been, um, just, just, uh, lighter because they're, they are, executioner has a point that they are this kind of like morbid insane group of people just like the fallen but in in a different way but there is definitely some lightness to the scene yeah yeah and our next commenter uh google plex bite uh agrees with the that that they are not totally incongruent Uh, again pointing out that their first priority was asking if they could kill or maim a captive Uh, They contrast the appearance with the horse-headed seer, suggesting they fit into the same paradigm of weird-off aesthetics. And I don't know if I fully agree with this one. I mean, I think I did not interpret interpret seer as quite as silly as the anime squad was. And I think when we are first introduced to these guys, the, the tone of the writing is definitely like silly and ridiculous and and it's definitely like a comedic beat um victoria's reaction to them is very funny um but i do agree that we quickly switch them over to a different tone and and i actually think that's why these characters don't spoil um the the tension of the entire scene is because we have these characters and like we're in this really stressed out moment and here come these these comedic characters that are weird and dressed funny and victoria is like just so annoyed that they're there and that's kind of funny but then we like we we do that beat and then we switch back almost immediately it's like as soon as they say well would it be all right if we kill him it's like oh wait we're back in this thing now and and that that juxtaposition there like rips you right back into the world of this tension. And I think that's why these characters work and, and don't spoil it. Um, so I guess I part agreed and part disagreed with that one. Yeah. It'd be interesting to get like an EKG of someone actually reading this chapter for the first time and see, like, I I think you would observe them to like relax a little bit for the first part of the, of the anime hero scene. And and then, like you said, it, it slams back in and that's, that's why it's effective. That's why it's better than, than them just being like, you know, the Mad Max squad comes in and it's like, oh yeah, of course this, of course we're going to see this because this is a hell world. It's mm-hmm. better. It's better if it's a, if it's kind of a, a distraction from that. Yeah, that's true. Um, Enamored says uh, the important part of holding tension across long stretches of time is all in the setup. Wild Bill can depart from the tension in the middle of the chapter as long as the stakes are set up at the start of the chapter and then they remain unresolved in the background. We're still anxious about that thing that was set up, whatever it was, no matter what happens in the middle of the chapter. 
Um, that said, there is a danger of indulging in the distraction too long, and then the reader starts saying, get on with it. I think that's all uh, completely true, and, and they actually uh, mention kind of, kind of examples of, of how Wild Bill kind of layers this a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's the, I think the one thing we wanted to get across with this question, and I think we succeeded in that is this is hard stuff. Like you're, you're kind of playing on the edge of a knife here. And if you go too far in one way, you can lose it or you, or it gets boring. And I think the fact that 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 chapter in particular and, and, and so many other scenes throughout the story don't is a testament to the writing. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Uh, Guy Rhoda says that Wild Bo doesn't hold the same kind of tension for too long and will diffuse one kind and then replace it with different kinds later. Um, they also give some examples of how at any given time you actually have several questions in the back of your mind, but each one will be more or less prominent in each scene. That's a very good point because uh, making it to one note would, as we've said, get a little stale. Um, so we kind of, you know, keep keep pushing things to the forefront and then making them go to the background when we're done with them or we resolve them and bring something else up. And I think it's, it's kind of like juggling all these conflict balls. Right. And, um, I think, I think that that helps maintain that tension for sure. Yeah. Like they point out specifically, there's a, there's a, the difference between the life and death in the moment tension and <clears throat> sorry, tension of a battle versus the long-term tensions of, of the characters. Um, um, actually, they distinguish between long-term tensions and, and character progression tension, which I think is interesting and probably a, a valid way of cleaving that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 love, I, love, I love trying to understand how tension works. That's something I think about a lot, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's like we said, it's really hard to do. Um, this is the first like writerly question we've asked where we've gotten a, a ton of responses. I feel like sometimes when we ask the the written or writing style specific questions, less people respond to them, which I always like, oh man. Um, but I was, I was really happy with all these responses, Matt. I thought this was a great conversation. A lot of you brought up some great stuff. I urge you guys, um, to go check out the Reddit thread to see those full posts. Uh, we don't have time to go through them all here, but, uh, it was, it was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I definitely caused me to see some things in a different way, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, in terms of general comments, um, Firehawk Delta asks, is the wretch a Frankenstein reference? Uh, Victor, uh, Victor as in Victoria, uh, Frankenstein <laughs> called his creature the wretch. I didn't know that because I hadn't ever actually read Frankenstein, but that's kind of awesome. Yeah. I mean, the, the monster in Frankenstein has many names, um, none of which are Frankenstein's monster. Uh -huh. Um, he calls it a lot of things. And one of the things that is called is, is the wretch. And the funny thing about this is I saw this comment and was like, oh, yeah, this is great. Let's throw it in. And then we were prepping and you were like, how did I never realize that Victor Victoria? And mm. I was like, wait, <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> um, yeah. That's that's a really cool little little beat there. Um, it, it makes it seem more likely that that connection is actually uh, present. Yeah. 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 All right. And let's dive into chapter 7.1, the first chapter of Torch. All right. And it opens up with, I gripped until my fingernails threatened to penetrate the skin, squeezing, strangling, until my hand hurt and my bullet wound hurt more. The pain in the bullet wound intensified until the muscle started to cramp. Relax. Matt. Matt. Mm-hmm. I love this. Mm-hmm. We, we cut off the last arc in the middle of this huge game-changing event. Um, portals were opened. The, the world is never going to be the same. 
And we start this with like this really close and brutal pain, this flash of pain that Victoria's feeling. And, and, and we're almost like immediately like, oh, God, what's happening? Is she fighting again? What's going on? And it's this little tiny moment of trickery here um, where our expectations are set up for conflict and then subverted with that relax line. And I think it's a really good way to set the expectations for the arc. Um, we've only read two chapters, right? But we can already tell that the, the, the kind of tone of this arc is much different there. The, the bad thing has happened and the team has kind of stepped back and we're in a kind of a recovery mode here. And, um, and, and this whole arc could end up being, you know, a calm before this eventual storm that's coming. Victoria even mentions that at the end of the second chapter of our, our session here tonight. Um, but it, it very much feels like we talked about arc six being the end of a, a book or a movement of Ward. This very much feels like the beginning of the second one. Yeah. And, and here, like you said, setting the tone uh, and, and to a degree, I think playing with, with a kind of tension that we, we just talked about, she's hurting herself. The first thing that happens in this chapter is she's hurting herself and someone has to tell her to back off. Yeah. And, and I think that there's other behavior in these chapters that evokes a kind of um, perhaps self-destructive is too strong a word, but, but definitely a, a, a lack of self-care. Um, um, I'm, I'm really curious to see where this arc goes in particular. Yeah, me too. So Victoria uh, is in a therapy, a, a physical therapy session. She's working through it uh, with her, um, her therapist, Anne Lynn, and her inner monologue focuses on her irritation with Anne Lynn. Uh, Victoria inwardly insists to herself that Anne Lynn seems like a lovely, warm, caring person, but also kind of can't stand her. <laughs> and this is partly due to the fact that she constantly solicits reassurance from her mentor who is working nearby. Uh, but I think that it's also partly due to her overly sunny manner, which I think just rubs Victoria wrong. Yeah, I, I really love the dichotomy here. She, she fully admits that this person's friendly, warm, bubbly, um, even go so far as to, to declare her a, a hard person to dislike. But you were absolutely right that there is that level of annoyance just under the surface. It's all kind of subtextual. She never even really says, uh, inter like, not out loud, obviously, but she never says within her monologue that, like, I don't like this person. But this to me feels like she feels like she shouldn't be annoyed with her. So she's kind of going out of her way. She's overcompensating to describe her as positively as possible um, to try to make up for the fact that she finds herself annoyed by this girl, no matter what. Um, yeah. And, and, and so it makes, it makes that kind of uh, compliment nature ring a little bit false. Right. Especially because she keeps snapping at her in her, in her monologue. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as it wraps up, she tells Victoria to pick out a sling and a stress ball and uh, Victoria is sad that there are no blonde, smug Susan stress balls to crush. I thought Victoria was over this whole tattletale thing. Oh, Matt. no. It's one step forward, one stress ball back. Yep. It, it is interesting how much like her opinions of Anne Lynn kind of ping pong around as we go through this whole thing. Um, she calls her a kindergarten teacher, um, which she like says is just because she's being bubbly and positive. But there's kind of a... a, a not insulting her because she's a kindergarten teacher, but just like saying she's out of place in this line of work. Um, but then, but then Anne Lynn um, says that she has family issues too. And so it's suddenly like, 
I like you now because you also have family issues. So like her, her dislike and like of this character is, is going back and forth with almost every line that she says. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly, and maybe this was more subliminal while I was reading it, but I kind of saw it as like Victoria can't relate to her and is irritated by her because she seems like a happy person and Victoria is a miserable person. And then when, mm-hmm. when Anne Lynn admits that, that there's something wrong in her life, Victoria's like, Oh, thank God there's something wrong in your life. I can relate to you now. And, and she actually stops the like snappish thoughts at that point. Um, so, so it's, it, it does seem to me like she was looking for, for some way of, of connecting to the person and couldn't do that when she thought that this was just like an actually happy, you know, happy go lucky person. Yeah. Yeah. Agree. I don't know if that's true, but no, I think sense. that's a fair, I think that's a fair interpretation. So then she selects for her stress ball a lion, which reminds her of a childhood stuffed animal. Um, and also, like, a lion is totally, like, the animal that she would see herself as. Yeah. So now Sky goes down a rabbit hole and looks at the constellation Leo and tries to figure out which stars are in that one to see if she'll name herself after them. And it didn't really, didn't really work out, man. <laughs> it didn't pan out. <laughs> didn't really work well, out. It's good to eliminate the uh, the impossible, right? Do you know that most of the constellations in Leo are just the stars are just called Leo? That doesn't that's not fair. I can't do that. <laughs> I mean they're different versions. There's like it's like Alpha Leo, Beta Leo, um it's and then there's like two actual named ones. Well, that's so lazy. Let's fix that. Let's rename them. I don't I don't know if we can. Hmm. We'll get we'll get someone on that. Um, so on her way out, a woman gives Victoria a nasty look for no apparent reason, and then the woman later eyes her in the locker room, and Victoria thinks she might say hi next time. It's kind of interesting how she doesn't really think anything negative about this interaction. Yeah, I mean, someone just gave you a nasty look, and you're not like, who's that? Like, why? Like, you know, she doesn't get defensive. In fact, her response to that is, I need to go be social with this person. Yeah. Right. I I don't know what to make of this exactly and like how much to read into it. Like, is this just who Victoria is? Is this how Victoria would have behaved five years ago? Like, does he just have such a like strong ego that someone giving her, uh, you know, the stink eye would have just been like, oh, I just need to talk to that person and then they'll be my friend. Or is this like a, I spent two years being a monstrous thing that no one could even look at. So I don't mind when someone gives me the stink eye. Like, like, wh- on what level is this? Is is this a is this a trauma thing or is this not a trauma thing? I guess is what I'm trying to understand. It feels like not to me. Um, it feels like a popular girl thing to do mm-hmm. because I think if if you're a person that in general people seem to like and seem to uh, like being around, you see someone that doesn't like you, and your first instinct is. Well, if I just talk to them, they'll like me because right. once you, once you talk to me, well, you'll like me. Yeah, because um, that's how it always works. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, um, I, I think there could be a read that it's trauma related, but I didn't I didn't get that. I, I agree with you, actually. I was just digging a little bit and seeing if I found anything interesting. Yeah, this is like the most blatant bit of interesting setup in this chapter to me. <laughs> um, like we just kind of introduce this person. We have two interactions with them and then they just go away for a little bit um we don't know who they are or why they seemingly don't like victoria or any of that stuff um i i i i was thinking about this and what what could this could be building to and i have a, a speculation here that i i don't know how much is textually supported but we 
I think we're going to use this girl to maybe re-explore this idea of uh, the animosity towards capes that's probably building even more now in the city. Um, one of the threads that we set up pretty deliberately in the first arc, but but hasn't been explored too much after that, was this cape-non-cape conflict, right? And now that these giant uh, portals are open in the sky and, and the peace uh, is seeming to be over, it feels like um, this conflict between these powered people and these non-powered people is probably going to be more heightened than ever. Um, and I think that this would be, this would be a great time to, to circle back to that conflict and bring that conflict back to the forefront. And maybe this person could be a potential avenue towards doing that. Lots of speculation here, but, uh, we'll see. That, yeah, I, I agree with you on all of that. I, I sort of saw that as like, I bet this person knows she's a cape and basically just dislikes her on principle. That was my yeah, yeah. gut reaction. Also, the arc name is Torch, so it could be a really good uh, grab your grab your pitchfork and torch mm-hmm. moment. So you know, yeah, it, that's that's too good. It's too good. <laughs> so now Victoria goes outside, and we get our first real look at the city after the disaster. Um, and, and this opens with a. Uh, Opening those eyes, I saw the gold-tinted city and mostly blue sky that would have been pleasant in any other circumstance. Pleasant if the horizon hadn't been shattered like a dropped mirror. The sky was divided with vague shapes stabbing up into it, the sky on the far left side taking uh, taking on different tints and weather. So, yeah, apparently, and we didn't know this, the portals are... I I guess we did know this part. The portals are, are weird portals. They're not gateways like Doormaker created but rather they're like the kind of four-dimensional hole expressed as a three-dimensional liminal volume that Scrub and Labyrinth made uh, together uh, during Gold Morning, I guess. Uh, And the portals are scrambled now. They no longer point to where they once pointed. And now there's there's a constant wind, apparently, as the portals serve to equalize pressure across dimensions. Um, At this point, I became derailed and started imagining what fluid dynamic simulations have coupled together you know, several Earths worth of weather through portals would look like and went and calculated that one PSI of pressure difference is roughly a 38 mile per hour wind. And um, I'll stop there. I don't have much to add there except for classic Matt. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's yeah. a very Matt thing to do, um, but it's cool, though. I, I, I suppose that it's very fitting that in these complex and divisive times, the city itself has literally like split itself apart. Right. Um, and, and you have these portals, some of which are probably pointing back to earth bet. Um, it, it's literally like the past is coming back and slicing into the present, right? We've been talking about this moving on or, or living in the past conflict from some beginning of the book. And now here's the past it's forced in front of you and it's taller than the highest building and you can't escape it. Yeah. This is a really cool visual. I, 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 I just find it exceptionally striking, even in the story, even in the story of, of many great visuals. Um, there's something about like, a you know, figures walking under the shadow of this distorted, broken, shattered sky. Yeah. And it, uh, maybe I'm, I'm going too far here, but this description of vague shapes stabbing up into it reminded me of the wretch a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's, that. maybe that's too much, but, uh, I, I just, I very much, very much felt this this monstrousness of of what the sky looks like yeah i would love i would love a you know a drawing or a painting of just like someone walking in the the shadow of this bizarre sky yeah 
yeah, so as she's as she's walking, she thinks over what might have happened to the people in the warden's headquarters, uh, including Jessica, Bonesaw, Nilbog, and other both both heroes and villains of of high uh, caliber. And she thinks maybe they were torn to shreds. Maybe they were just somewhere else. Yeah. So I know Jessica, we said we said that Jessica is dead in last week's episode. And I think with the number of extremely important capes that just dis- disappeared in this moment, dead seems much less likely, um, though I don't think this matters in relation to what we spoke about last week. The, the Misbetoys have lost their mentor figure regardless of which if she's dead or just gone. Um, and, and we'll now need to rely on each other, which is kind of exactly what we see them do in these first two chapters. So, um, Jessica might be coming back, but, um, it, it, for the short term, that doesn't matter to our characters. Right. Narratively, she's out of the picture. That's kind of the important thing. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I mean, I actually think she's not dead, but I, I agree that, um, that, yeah, she's not going to be here for a while. At least not yet. Not yet. yet. Uh, so yeah, like, like we mentioned a moment ago, the the people on the street are not taking the disaster well. They're keeping their heads down. You get this sense that there's just this like pall of, of oppression over the city, and yeah, a lot of that uh, is going to fulminate into anti-cape sentiment. Yeah, it, it's it's hard to imagine just what these people are going through. Imagine surviving the end of the world. You make it to this new world, and for two years, there's relative peace and prosperity. Things are growing and proving. It's slowly starting to go back to some semblance of normal. And then this. And I, I noticed here that Wadbo takes the time to point out that Brockton Bay's industrial section was basically sliced in half with by by this growing portal and separated, which, if I recall, was like similar to what happened to old Brockton Bay, where... Um, the older industrial section was just kind of cut off due to um, the bay and lack of funding um, to to actually want people want us to ship over the bay. So that part just kind of died. Um, and so it's like Brockton Bay, whether old or new, it just can't it just can't win. Yeah, I think we could probably stand to spend a minute talking about what a disaster this really is, because I mean, like both practically and symbolically because Brockton Bay was this city that was already on the decline then got destroyed by Leviathan and went through all kinds of other you know the the Bakata bombing run or, uh, that was actually before Leviathan but anyway the, the point being the the rejuvenation of Brockton Bay happened when Tattletail tricked you know basically tricked Labyrinth and Scrub into making the portal and then you know took ownership of it and that's that's what started to turn the city around. Then the world ends, and it's like okay, everyone escapes into New Brockton Bay, and now the portal, which was once like the thing that was going to save the city, now expands and basically cuts the city in half again. So it's this symbolic like stab in the back, you know, fuck you in your dreams type type moment. Um, yeah, and and then pragmatically, like you said, like not only is the portal now cutting the city in half. But it doesn't even point where it used to point. So, so like whatever evacuation, you know, trains they had set up to to go between Bet and and Gimel, or or even between other worlds and Gimel, are no longer connected. You have to assume, right? Like like a, the the train that Dot took to get in is no longer functioning. You you'd have to assume, right? If if, yeah, if the portal yeah. changed uh, locations. No, so yeah, I mean, you're you're right. There's 
there's people dying on bet. Um, there's people on Gimmel that probably have family that's trying to make their way to, to Gimmel. Um, this is, yeah, I mean, morale wise, this has got to be just completely devastating. Yeah. And whose fault is it, Matt? It's the Capes fault. Yep. It's the Capes. I, I just wanted to go through kind of walk through the details of it because she doesn't really think about that. She's more focused on the personal stakes, which is understandable, yeah. but, but we can extrapolate all that. And I, I'm pretty confident that most of that is, is right. Yeah. I really liked this one part where she, she describes it as um, the affected areas of the city felt like ghost towns that weren't empty, nor were towns. The warmth wasn't there. There wasn't a soul or a community and everything felt eerie. Too new, too worn out for how new they were. Insects cluttered on warm surfaces and too many businessmen businesses were closed with all the lights off despite their posted hours. So I really like this sentence too new, too worn out for how new they were insects clustered on warm surfaces and obviously in this story uh insects have a pretty important symbolic meaning right Mm -hmm. i mean it's it's worm the insects are very important to that story and no i don't think this means oh taylor's gonna come back (laughs) no that's not what it means but i do think this is a symbol like we said of how bad things have gotten and how much they've reverted to the way they were before old brockton bay was the place or at least partially the place ruled by the bug lady. Mm-hmm. And and now we've had this terrible thing happen. And what do we notice? Insects are back. They're here. Um, this is this is the old world cutting into the new. Yeah. Right. And now the bugs don't even have the symbolism of like, oh, good. Skitter can at least protect people. It's just purely, oh, no, this is, you know, a, a post disaster scene. Yeah, exactly. So after her walk through this eerie city, Victoria arrives at a meeting place, and Kenzie's already there. So is her dad, Julian. Kenzie mentions that uh, she likes getting places early so she can study and psychoanalyze people as they arrive. Bless this poor girl's heart. Everything you do, where you sit, who you say hi first, who you talk to most, she's analyzing all of this stuff, Matt. And what's worse is she probably records it all and then goes home and plays it back again and again and again and studies it what did that blink mean was that a frown because of me was it at me why did she say it with that tone there's an episode of black mirror and i don't know if you've seen this particular one yet but where everyone has like a a recording device installed into their eye that is like constantly recording and everyone obsessively like rewinds and watches every interaction with every human being they have and analyzes it to death and that that is kenzie that is i think it's not it's not too outlandish to extrapolate that that's what she does every time she leaves these groups yeah no i i uh, i didn't catch that but I, I suspect you're right because it's hard to notice regularities like that unless you are like basically studying um the interactions post facto you, you know it's hard to catch them in the moment when you're trying mm-hmm. to interact with people yeah uh, that, that's great and no i haven't seen that episode but it sounds awesome oh it's gonna fuck you up good Good. I, I can usually only absorb like one of those per week then I have to recover. That's fair. So Julian asks what happened to Victoria's arm. And then he shares an amusing anecdote about the time he was a child gang member and was shot trying to escape. How embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She keeps using that word. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah. Tristan arrives now and Julian leaves and they talk about how he gives off a weird vibe. Um, and at this point I kind of want the explanation of, of his behavior to just be like, Oh yeah, he's, he's just weird. Him, him and, 
and and the mom are just weird people that that's all there is to it yeah i mean i think the kenzie's dad is a robot joke is just literally a joke to me now like i don't i don't actually believe that at all um it was a fun game to play but i think it works much more that these are just kind of weird people that are also like hyper aware of what being around kenzie is like and therefore they come off as even more strange because they're they're so like filtered and controlled in their conversation and their actions because they know their daughter um i think that that is that is much more satisfying to me than oh he's he's a robot yeah yeah I, i agree but speaking of Tristan, he looks a little different, doesn't he, Matt? He's he's dressed a little differently. Yeah. He he walks with confidence. No hair dye in his head. He's wearing a, a suit with minus the the jacket. He's looking nice. Yeah. And and it's the point where from a distance they can't even tell if it's Tristan or Byron until he speaks. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is part of a multi-character um I'm not going to call it a three beat because I think there's more than three of them, but we basically go through our toys one by one and they are dressed differently. Yeah. Um, there's, there's no chocolate in this scene. So that's, that's definitely, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I, I had to say that. Um, yeah, no, you're, you're right. I mean, it's the, the lack of hair dye. I, I was very surprised at because I thought that was just like, Oh, that's, that's his thing. That's how you tell him apart from his brother. Um, so I guess he, he or, or hair paint, I guess it is. And I guess he just washed it out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the uh, the suit makes sense once we figure out that they're going to a, a court session. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the hair dye. I mean, you could argue he's trying to be more fancy and hair dye is, is not welcome in a court of law. But I don't know. I think I think as we as we go through them, I think this is saying something about the the uh, status of our team. Yeah, I agree. So yeah, next Chris shows up not wearing his headgear and of course miserable because he lost some teeth due to changing too much. Yeah, and once again, we're seeing the consequences of those changes, right? And there's something really interesting here that uh, that I think we need to talk about as they debate this because as they're talking about um, you're changing too much, like you've got to stop changing too much. Chris comes back with a snarky, oh yes, thank you, Tristan. I completely forgot. I need and want to change in case you forgot. Like right now, I want to get back home and change into a puddle of flesh with no nerve endings or teeth, but we're doing this instead. I need and want to change. And I want to give a shout out to uh, to one of our listeners, Fip Industries, who is also the one, Matt, that made that uh, comic of us uh-huh. one time, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, who helped point me down this road with an amazing Reddit post that they made this week. Um Victoria is a person who is desperately trying to move away from her time as a giant puddle of flesh. And unfortunately, her power, the wretch, serves as kind of a constant reminder of that state. Chris, on the other hand, is a person whose power is literally to turn into that thing. And not only does he need to, he wants to. He desires it. Mm -hmm. What Victoria is scared to either become again or scared that she still is on some level, Chris is scared not to become. And I think not only is this a really interesting way of playing these two characters off each other in the future, but it also could serve to explain why Victoria has seemingly unconsciously to her kept Chris at the furthest distance of all the misfit toys throughout their their uh, uh, friendship and team so far. He reminds her of the wretch. He reminds her of that time in the hospital. He reminds her of that thing. Yeah, that, that I love all of that. That makes a lot of sense that she would have the hardest time relating to him because 
he essentially wants to be more monstrous and sh- and she is going out of her way above and beyond to differentiate herself from that um i want to i want to focus on like how what kind of a wake-up call this is that he's lost some teeth and it's like what he just changed like maybe one more time than he should have yeah and, and now he loses teeth like that's one of the more extreme negative power consequences that we've seen outside of a k-63 right like like normally people don't damage their like normally their power protects their body right that's the whole um manthan effect thing the power protects you know you're, you're protected from hurting yourself with your power and he's lost like losing teeth is not a trivial thing uh so it's it's a rather stark indication of how weird his power is i guess yeah no i i think you're absolutely right there and it's man chris is chris is fascinating and i i'm so interested with this idea of it, we kind of play off when they tell him, Chris, you're changing too much. There's, there's a lot of verbiage in the way he replies that is very similar to if you're talking to an addict, right? Like he, he, his response to that is like, I got this. I know my limits. I'm going to control myself. I'm fine. And he's kind of completely dismissing, uh, their obvious real concerns for him. And I wonder if, if that's something we're going to explore too. Like he's talking about, he needs this, he wants it, he has to change. And we're seeing these effects that they, they have on him. And, and uh, if if he continues to get opportunities to push it beyond what he should do, this is going to become a problem. And he he's obviously addicted to it. Yeah, yeah. And but but maybe also actually does need it. You know, you can't we can't sure, say that he doesn't. Sure. It's just he he may be addicted to it and also he needs it. Yeah. Um. Yeah. There's some joking now about how Kenzie looks like she's praying over her laptop, which leads to an interesting exchange. Yeah, it's another little mini beat about Kenzie's uh, spirituality. She says she doesn't uh, attend church regularly, but she wishes she does, so she could come with a, a, a snarky comeback to him. I'm not sure how this is going to pay off, but it is such an interesting wrinkle in this character. And we've talked about this before. We've talked about spirituality, uh, maybe even religion, being one of the more examined and explored things in Ward. And I... I find it very interesting that we keep getting these Kenzie beats and I, I, I want to keep bringing them up when they happen because I think this is probably going to pay off in an interesting way. Yeah. And, and here it's Kenzie and Tristan interacting about their shared religiosity, I suppose, talking about church and their shared experiences with church and mm-hmm. Byron too, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, and then Chris chimes in. Um, not that, not that we have any real indication that he's religious, but he, is you know learned and and he he suggests that the prayer that she say over her laptop be a ex nihilo nihil feet, which means nothing comes from nothing. So this could be a thing that we talk about for an hour. Yeah, um, we're probably not going to do that. But I wanted to get your take on this. I wanted to what what is your interpretation of this? Because even even that phrase, even nothing comes from nothing, by itself out outside of this story has a lot of different interpretations yeah like my where my mind first went uh for kinsey specifically was like the, you know the 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 phrasing is is cute but the the sort of the more straightforward way of saying it is everything that is present came from somewhere right um there, there's an explanation or, or perhaps there's an explanation for everything there, there's a, a cause for everything you could say um 
a source for everything. You know, it, it, it's it, that's the thing. It, it's ambiguity makes it more fun to think about. Um, and you can say like, okay, well, he, he's applying it to Kinsey and calling it a compliment. And, and perhaps he's saying like, what's, what's good about, um, Kinsey comes from, comes from somewhere or, um, th- or th- good things in the world come from Kinsey. I mean, it's, it's, it's vague enough that I, that it gives you a certain impression that, that, that there's depth here, um, that he's. The, 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 something specific he's thinking of, but I'm not sure what he's thinking of exactly. Yeah, I think that was kind of my read on it. I I tried to be as charitable to Chris as possible. Um, you you could also like it, it is a very interesting conversation because he says this. Um, Kenzie basically assumes it's an insult. Victoria is like, "Are you being like an angsty teenager because you're like into nihilism? Because you said nihil twice in a sentence." And he's his response to that is like, "Why do I even say anything?" Right. And it, it's it's a very funny exchange, but. I think there's something there's something key to Chris here in that it, he chooses this this expression because Chris, the the who is kind of I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to call Chris nihilistic, but he's certainly not the most positive member of the group. Um, but there is there is a certain amount of positivity in that saying yeah. that that everything comes from somewhere like without if there was truly nothing, then there would be nothing because you can't like the whole thing is you can't create something out of nothing. Right. So um, that is, that is a more positive side of Chris than we normally see. Yeah. I mean, it almost maps onto the platitude. Everything happens for a reason, which is far more sunny than Chris would ever say. (laughs) Right. Um, But, but you can find a similar, that's the thing is it's, it's, I like the phrase because, you can twist it to mean different things, but yeah, it definitely, I think has that meaning too. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it could just be Chris fucking with her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So next Sveta arrives and we, we take a look at her changes and like everyone else, she's a bit different. She's got a new wig and the paint is the paint that covered her. Her body is gone. Yeah. And, and like I said, the reason for the more formal attire makes sense in a second. We figure out what they're all doing here, but I think symbolically we're showing after the events of the fallen, our characters are changed. They are different now and their external appearance reflects that difference. Um, and the only one that I don't think follows this, um, is Kenzie who is probably just a projection over herself anyway. And she's out of anyone. She's the one that's not going to show a change in appearance. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think you're right. Um, yeah. So we're still not sure what's going on or why they've gathered uh, that then they make their way somewhere nearby. And Dr. Darnell Darnall, I don't know. I think uh, Darnall Darnall Victoria's new therapist ambushes her. And uh, she thinks to herself, he was the kind of guy I might've imagined as a kid's baseball coach with a bit of a belly, short hair and a soft expression with lines in the forehead as easygoing as he looked in the moment. I could imagine him getting really intense in the right occasion. And uh, he's, he's kind of, they converse for a moment and he explains why he's there. He shrugged. My clients rub off on me. Sometimes you can't limit yourself to chasing after or staking out and waiting. Getting out ahead of the problem, I said. If you want to put it that way, he said. I nodded. Um, <laughs> and I, I like that exchange because like, it seems like he's kind of similar to Victoria in this moment. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. And I immediately kind of like this guy. Um I think he he realizes that in order to 
kind of lock Victoria down and and get this session to happen, he's going to have to go on the offensive. He's going to have to get in here and confront her. And it makes me wonder what kind of things Yamada said to him about Victoria to to think that this is this is going to have to be his initial reaction. Like, I just I would just love to be on the fly of the wall of the Yamada um, Darnall conversation and and see like how she how she describes Victoria, this incredibly complex, troubled person to this guy. Oh, man. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. I, I, I love that thought because um, you just know you just know they had this conversation. You're exactly yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and, and as we're going to see shortly, he probably came up with certain tactics, you know, bearing in mind what he knows about her in advance. Yeah. He, yeah, I don't think he's coming into this cold. No, um, no. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, now the team enters the courtroom as it opens and joins Ashley, who's already seated. Rain is facing down the tribunal and we see that he's cut his hair. Yeah, so this is kind of a reveal at the end of the chapter, right? We're here for Rain's trial. Um, and, and for a second there, we kind of play with it where we think maybe this is Ashley's trial um, because we know she's turned herself in. But no, this is for Rain. And just like the most of his team, he's different looking. And I think his difference is, is perhaps the most significant. His hair is cut short. We know what that means, Matt. That's the hair that Mama forced him to grow out as a symbol of just how much she owned him. And it's cut. So we, in this moment, we're going to go into this in detail in the next chapter, but in this moment we get to see that Rain, while facing down the justice system, while facing down the consequences of the things he's done, he's already free. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a wonderful beat to end your chapter on. Yeah. Yeah, this... this um this next chapter that we're about to get into i think you and i both love this so much um i i pulled out way too many quotes here uh, that i'm gonna be reading um and (laughs) how could how could we not how could we not yeah it's it's i mean this is i was i was almost just now gonna say this is like this is like the end of the of the rain arc sort of um, not, not that we're like done with rain, but like it, it's a nice capstone to all of the heinous shit that happened to rain. Um, but it's but it's far from just being a rain focused chapter. It has it has some fantastic Victoria scene. So let's just get into it. Yeah, let's do it. We got a lot to say. Yeah. So here in the next episode of Law and Order: Parahumans Victim Unit, uh, we watch the pretrial determination of the worthiness of the case. Uh, many of the court functionaries seem young and inexperienced. Yeah, and I love how the text illustrates that point. We have the one formally directing directing person uh, that's like directing all the proceedings, and he's a 20-something-year-old guy. He's dressed formally, but then he opens his mouth and says things like, spoiler, there are charges of manslaughter, so it probably is, referring to the if the case um, is uh, worthy. Mm-hmm. And this is so immediately jarring. Like, I remember yeah. reading it the first time and being like, like, I, I think I came into the thread and went like, Wild Bo, did he, <laughs> did he really say that? And it's it's so incredibly jarring and out of place. And it's meant to be. Yeah. The, the justice system in this world is is in its infancy. And this one guy has illustrated that point with one single sentence that that this is informal. This is still in the process of being established. And I think it's so great that we take the time to do that 
as we go down. I think what it does is kind of makes you nervous automatically for how this thing's going to go. Yeah, because we we care about rain. And and as much as um, rain wants to be punished for the things he's done at, at this point, we're kind of like, oh, maybe this guy's been punished enough. Um, and and the last thing we want to see is kind of a kangaroo court. And we have this guy say spoiler alert <laughs> while reading the, the opening declaration of the court. And you're just like, oh, no. Yeah. What's going to happen? Yeah. I basically like like may have actually shifted uncomfortably in my seat at how <laughs> at how like awkward that that made me feel. Because you imagine, you know, as you're reading, you imagine that really happening and you're like, oh, my God, really? Yeah. Um. Yeah, so Rain first speaks to clarify that the independent farming settlement outside New Haven that they reference was a fallen settlement and that the fallen is a cult. And this kind of correction here that he offers is, I think, the closest that he comes to to defending himself at any point here. Yeah, but he's it's not even he's not even making a, an excuse. He's just like stating a factually accurate thing. Right. Like, yes, they're a cult. Yeah, true. Yeah, and then and then he kind of clarifies like I'm only even saying that because I want to make sure that Mama Mathers is put away. It, it's right. not a it's not meant to be extenuating. Yeah, yeah. So another and that's yeah that's what he does throughout all this. He never makes excuses. He's done with excuses. Yeah. yeah. So another functionary clarifies that Rain is essentially on the hook for the mall incident, for killing Snag, for a vague list of crimes back before Gold Morning, uh, which they refer to as the end of the last calendar era. And and then finally, kind of balancing that on the other side, mitigating that, we have the, the fact that Rain provided information and assistance during the Fallen Battle. Yeah, and I really like the rhythm of the writing here, because you have the formal court kind of going down the facts uh, or the charges, and then you have Victoria's internal narrative interjecting after each one and clarifying and kind of translating for the audience, because there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of double speak in court lingo, and they're not specifically spelling some things out. And she's here to say, okay, this is what they're talking about here. This is what they're talking about here. This is what they're talking about here. And I just think it's, it's, um, it, it's very much like, adds like a rhythm to the proceedings and it also makes sense for victoria who's going to take this stuff and kind of chop it down to the bare bones of what they're talking about if only for herself Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i agree it's it's cool to have the perspective that that it's from a perspective um another um so 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 yeah they also mentioned uh that the court has an awareness of the soft the the soft compulsion element that that's how they refer to the mama mathers effect yeah, and it's weird because this is one of those things that I think immediately rubs you the wrong way because we know there's nothing soft about what Mama Mathers does. But yeah. on the other hand, I don't know how else to put what her thing is. Like, how do you put that into words? Because it's not direct mind control. She's not directly controlling people, but she's influencing people. Um, h- how do you describe that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's I, I want to I immediately go to the word um, threat. Because what it is, is it's it's a way of threatening people over like arbitrary distances that if, if they don't do what you say, then you're going to cause them pain and, and you know, mess up their mind. Um, so it's it's coercion. It, it's it's definitely it's explicitly coercion. It's it's not compulsion because well, well it is compulsion, but it's it's like coercion under a threat of violence and. It doesn't even matter that there's a power involved, really. Like if you have a cult leader who's like, 
do what I say or I'll kill your family who I have in captivity. Like that, that's a thing that could happen in the real world. Yeah. And, and you would it, like th- that would be considered to be a serious, you know, extenuating factor probably. I, I, I don't know. I don't actually know if courts would consider that to be an extenuating factor, but it seems like it should be. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Yeah. I wonder if they would, I don't know. I, I don't know how that works. <laughs> yeah. Good question. <laughs> um, yeah. So, the court asks him to explain a bit why he turned himself in. And he explains how he didn't feel he had agency as a youth, but then the first time he was really presented with a choice, he made the wrong one. Yeah, and that, once again, taking full responsibility for things in every way. He says, I should have made that call and opened that door. Do you think the turning yourself in will make that better? The frumpy woman asked, seeing them in your dreams. No, Rain said. I don't see how that matters. Boom. Mm -hmm. Like this isn't about feeling better. This isn't about balancing the scales. It's about acknowledging the bad thing we've done, regardless of the justifications or the excuses or the, the bad people that made us do them. We've defended you and I have defended rain a lot on this podcast. And I think even here and now rain would say, that's nice, but I don't want you to defend me. Mm -hmm. And isn't that, the person that deserves defense more than anything, right? Like, I, I just feel like how else do you show how much you've actually learned and how truly regretful of a thing you've done? Are? Like, I don't know. I don't know how better to do it than he's doing it. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good point, because I feel like the way this whole this whole trial scene is structured um like you couldn't have coached rain to behave more like perfectly um um contrite and 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 the point is that he is he's genuinely contrite that's why yeah uh and that's that's what's compelling i think that's what's compelling about him as a character at this point is this like complete um like devotion you know, he, he he's called himself a believer before, and, and I think he has this streak to his character that's like an impassioned uh, person who's able to zealously pursue a certain, a certain goal or a certain way of being. And he's turned that from being, you know, from zealously being a, a fallen, uh, which is something that he basically practiced at his whole life, to zealously being the opposite of that, um, which is this, which is this person who's interested in um some kind of i don't know some kind of making it right some kind of justice some kind of absolution um or redemption um and and it's it's admirable and it makes you like him yeah in my opinion completely agree i like i liked that that um the idea of zealotry in the opposite direction yeah that just occurred to me honestly um so then we flash forward i i guess forward uh as <laughs> as victoria flies to a rooftop and meets with dr darnell yeah I, I, before we go on i just want to point out how great the transition is here because we have a section break here and the previous section ends with darnell in court standing up and walking out of the room and then we hard cut to victoria here meeting him and for a second it's almost like wait what did did she follow him out is this later what's going on here and it takes us a bit to catch up and and i think um, I think that feeds into what this 
break here is doing. Um, and that's what I want to talk about when we get to the end of this chapter is why did we cut up the chapter like this? Why did we kind of jump forward and then jump back? Um, but we'll get to that at the end, I think. Yeah, I, I want to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so she she gives him, she, you know, she flies to the rooftop. She gives him her homework, uh, which is um, like a drawing. Um and, and 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 as he looks over this this drawing of how she's feeling, she notes that he doesn't seem to have any compulsion to fill silence, um, and she herself feels self conscious about the homework. It's interesting how quickly Victoria starts to think negatively of Darnell here, even though he she kind of seemed to have a good impression of him in the last scene. Um, she's really kind of immediately biased against him, and for no for relatively little like like objective reason. Like Darnell mentions being new to working with capes and being a practitioner of cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, which is a very distinct thing from what we've seen of Jessica's approach. And um, Victoria's just not, not even like open-minded. Yeah. Um, the, <laughs> the entirety Matt of this opening part of the conversation is constructed very specifically to differentiate these two therapists as much as humanly possible. Uh, he opens this conversation asking her if she prefers Victoria or if she has a cape name she would prefer. Uh, Jessica Yamada would never do that. Jessica Yamada likes, doesn't like calling people by their capes name. She would want to call her Jessica. He says she can call him Dr. Darnall, just doctor or Wayne. Uh, something that Victoria specifically mentioned back way back in arc two that she can't do with Yamada when she's a friend, she's Jessica, but when she's the therapist, she's Mrs. Yamada. Um, he says he has very little experience working with capes. That was Yamada's bag. That's what she did. She worked with capes. And then lastly, like you said, he practices a completely different kind of therapy than Yamada does. And all this does is, is serve to, um, as you said, make Victoria strongly dislike this guy from the drop. And she, she sure does. She sure dislikes this guy. Yeah. Um, man, I want to talk about the nature of the timing of this, but I guess we'll get to that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so, and, and she, she explains it. She says, um, currently I'm bothered because I feel like I feel like ambushing me at the courthouse, having me draw the image instead of writing out my feelings leaving that image out where I can see it and having this meeting on the rooftop, it's confrontational. And then later on continues pushing me or testing my boundaries, trying to catch me off balance. It feels like little plays I've had to deal with for a long time. I don't know if you're doing it intentionally because you want to get past my guard or if it's unintentional and you're doing it because you're insecure because I have experience dealing with people who do that. <laughs> um, and, and so like she's being so, um, uh, suspicious, I guess, of, of like every little choice, like leaving the image out. It's like, okay, maybe he just didn't put the image away. Like that's not a, right. it's not a power play. Um, There's I, an assumed intent behind every exact, action of his. Yes, well said. And, and then his response is just perfect where he's like, okay, let's get back to that in a minute. So he, he doesn't engage. He doesn't attempt to respond to the accusations. He's just taking his information and letting her continue. Yeah. And I think... What's what's fascinating when you go back and read this is watch how little he actually talks like she's steering the conversation. She's leading the conversation and he's kind of just asking follow up questions and then like 
when she's especially agitated, trying to calm her down and and trying to be positive and helpful. Um, but she's really steering this thing. And yet she feels the one like the one that's being confronted. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. Um, so, yeah, Victoria also seems kind of dead set on this idea that that uh, what happened to her um, is like super special bad um we've got victoria swearing more than usual and doing stuff like i stabbed the table a few times with my finger to punctuate the last few words so she's like really pissed off and confrontational and at this point in the conversation doesn't even seem cognizant of the fact that she is although i think later she becomes more cognizant of it yeah and, and she gets mad at him here because she's being vague and he's not jumping to the right conclusions. He's like, if Yamada was here, she would she would understand. She would jump to the right conclusion. She would know what I really meant here. But Yamada was someone that t- talked to you for hundreds, possibly thousands of hours about everything that you were going through. Sorry, he doesn't know exactly what you mean after meeting you once. And, and also, while Yamada is a saint who can do no wrong, <laughs> I, I, I do wonder if... Um, and I think I've said this before, actually, that, that there didn't arise some kind of, I, I want to go, I, I want to say enabling relationship, but I don't think that's quite right. I think it's more like Yamada lost perspective due to being so, you know, in, in the, in the weeds with the cape stuff that she, she lost the perspective that she needs to kind of nudge Victoria out of these, these grooves because like there's such a thing as being too in you know Victoria's headspace at the point where you yeah. can't even get her out of it. I, I don't know. Perhaps I'm extrapolating too far. I mean, I, there's there's Yamada messed up. Like like that's that's one of the the through lines of of this the beginning of this book, right? That these kids got together. Um, there's some scary unknown thing that Yamada is terrified by. So she messed up. So yeah, like this person, our, our, our patron saint of worm is not infallible. And we have to remember throughout this entire interaction that every time Victoria is, is questioning if this guy has even the capability of understanding what she's going through as is, is even able is, is knowledgeable enough to get the capes and to get her that this guy was recommended to her by Yamada. Yamada saw something in this guy that he thought would be helpful to Victoria. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's a through line that we can't drop because we, especially as the events of the rest of this whole therapy session unfold. Yeah. I'm reminded suddenly of the Yamada interlude where, we see that like her life is like sleeping in bed with a box of pizza and then being woken up at 3am to rush in to help someone. Like she's not, she's, she's actually like Victoria, which is not a great thing to, you know, you don't necessarily want a therapist who's like you. You want a therapist (laughs) who has perspective on you. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. I I don't, I mean, there's a reason Yamada said, Hey, I probably shouldn't be your therapist anymore. Right. Like even she was, conscious of the fact that hey this is it it, it probably to me it was not just i'm busy with these other people like Mm -hmm. it's it's too close yeah too too close yeah i think there's something there and then we get to this next stuff oh boy where 
I'm just going to quote this whole piece. You feel what you had to deal with could have been averted and you want to avert it for others. 1000%, I said with emotion. 1000 fucking percent it could have been averted. By an outsider or by someone close to the situation? Both. By, by any of us paying more attention or communicating more or paying more attention to powers and how powers work or being a little bit more of an actual family. It could have been better if I'd fought better or, or harder and torn through some mutant dogs and gotten home sooner if I'd dodged that one acid spittle or follow-up hit and avoided being taken out of commission or if one less person had died, maybe those of us who were grieving might have been clearer-headed and we could have steered things away. Wow, Matt. Mm-hmm. It could have been averted. What happened could have been averted. And she says she, anyone could have averted it. Any of us. Any of us paying more attention. But I think the subtext here is I could have done it. Mm-hmm. I could have averted it. And what this all comes back to in the end is herself and the blame she puts on herself for everything that happened. There's a lot of implied stuff here. Um, the idea of if if we, we understood how powers work, we've already had beats about um, how Victoria fears that her aura may have influenced Amy in certain ways. Um, something that I think was semi confirmed by Tattletale or maybe not directly. Maybe she's just fucking with her, but, um, that's something that we know is in Victoria's head. And like the most interesting thing about all this to me is that none of the venom in this sentence is directed towards Amy, Mm -hmm. the person who did this to her. It's almost as like she doesn't even see it as Amy's fault here. It's she places more of the blame on herself. Yeah, yeah. There, there's that element, and and this also kind of this is this is a scene that reveals a lot of things or hints at a lot of things. And there's yeah. also this idea that like, um, she's not just mad at Carol because Carol didn't come to the hospital. Like right. C- Carol is yet another person who could have averted this and as her mom probably should have been the one to do so um and she never explicitly in her thoughts blames her mom for what happened to her but that's got to be just right there under the surface simmering and maybe something she won't even admit to herself but but that's got to be part of her motivation well i mean the line of being a little bit more of an actual family yeah yeah um you you better believe that she blames her mom for that part that yeah if 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 I had a better mother, if I had a mother that was better with me and better with Amy, we would have been closer and this never would have happened. Yeah. And, and probably her dad, too. If I had a dad who yeah. wasn't, you know, self-absorbed and, you know, whatever other, you know, aspersions she would probably want to cast at him. And while while realizing they're unfair at the same time, yeah. um, it, there's he could have just as easily been the one to to have the perspective. But I think even. Even Victoria's hatred of her mother, to me, still comes back to herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that a lot of a lot of what she she really gets angry at her mother for is the things that she did or failed to do that turned Victoria into the person who she became. Right. So mm-hmm. like. Like if if you had been a better mom, I would have been better and this wouldn't have happened. And. Like, I think it's just so it's just so kind of staggering how much how much she puts on herself in this, how much she blames herself for what happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
yeah um we're not even we're not even done <laughs> oh god yeah it gets worse yeah so a, a bit later you know she she does become cognizant of her own mentality here but it's not really like a like a productive way i don't think because she she's thinking i didn't want to make sense i wanted to put him off balance to shake him and get him get him uh and get more of a sign than a sorry look and kind quiet assurance that he could put me on the right track i wanted to gut him not to impale him or tear his stomach out but to make him feel a fraction of what i felt emotionally i'm glad she clarified that she didn't mean physically gut him because <laughs> yeah <laughs> she could have you know yeah it's god she's she's gotten really worked up now and in this moment she's having trouble breathing she's worked herself so much and like he's having to say breathe breathe and she's like i know how to breathe okay but it's like you're struggling through your words like you're stumbling and and she's clearly worked up and it's it's crazy it's it's almost shocking when she says that by the way like like this is two years of therapy warrior monk victoria right and and she's like i know how to breathe okay and it it comes off so like um raw and and Mm -hmm. uncontrolled relative to how she is almost all the other times we've seen her even when she's in objectively terrible situations yeah he's pushed her into the space that we've never seen her before Mm -hmm. in in this story so far that we've never seen her kind of get this raw and this real and it's happening really fast. And like yeah. I said, he's not he's not saying that many things. Yeah. <laughs> <He's> just... <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, she finally does calm herself down and then and, and she still insists that he doesn't really get it. He doesn't understand that, that everything with capes is bigger, worse, more distorted, more magnified. Yeah. And that's a pretty uncharitable look on our guy here. <laughs> and like, I don't think she's wrong. Like capes do magnify issues cape problems are like regular regular human problems on steroids but again we have to go back to this fact that yamada picked this guy there's something that she thought he could do for her that she couldn't so maybe maybe give him a chance before you assume that he couldn't just couldn't possibly understand right right um and then uh, this next part forever um, yeah I felt other impulses, too, to break the table, to try to drive some point home by scaring him through a display of power. I felt I felt other impl- uh The warrior monk wouldn't have approved of that, though. My voice was small. I don't know if I'm human. Um, yeah, so, so for, first of all, before we get into that last sentence, maybe I'm reaching here, but maybe that's exactly why he held the the meeting on the rooftop like like gentling a horse you make sure that it knows that it has the opportunity to flee but never provoke it to the point where it actually does while you get gradually closer until the horse decides that it must be comfortable with how close you are so by by giving her this escape hosting it on the rooftop he's actually kind of reverse psychology her into opening up to him more um yeah yeah, and I, that's my read too. Um, and I, I think I think what we're seeing here is this guy being actually really fucking good at his job um, because he meets her here. He confronts her 
And he very quickly gets Victoria to a place where she's revealing things about herself and she's being honest with herself about things that we throughout this entire book have never seen her articulate. Yeah. I don't know if I'm human. This this whole line of thought um, with with her humanity is something she's never consciously talked about before. And so, yeah, I mean, the 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 setting, how he did it, what what Victoria read as intentional very well could have been intentional but to push her to this place maybe he wanted you to get to a place where you feel like you need to gut him by revealing your truth victoria i mean maybe that's exactly what he wanted you to do yeah because it worked yeah um and and then you know she explicates that i met his eyes she told me that when she made that body larger than mine that sprawling broken wretched thing raw materials were harvested from stray cats dogs and rodents birds bugs other things people's household pets that were left behind after leviathan attacked she said um she said um so yeah like the breakdown of her speech there at the end is is pretty pretty gutting actually yeah um and and it seems like this little nugget of horror that has been gnawing away at victoria this whole time like we, we we've never like you said never seen an indication that this was here um because like even after talking about all those other things that she's been talking about in this session things that she's had trouble talking about in the past once she gets to this she kind of derails and and can't continue yeah yeah i mean this is this is as she even says at the end of the chapter this is very getting very close to the core of of herself and she has not come here before very often and she cannot handle it and it's it's like (laughs) Not only does she feel like the wretch, the blob that was trapped in the hospital is still here with her, but she's not even human anymore in her mind. She's not even, he's not parahuman, something else. Para, I don't know, cat, paracat? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I want to point out before we move on, like the this content is all really great. It is. Um, it, it's It's powerful and impactful. But the dialogue writing here is fantastic. The ums and uhs. Victoria does not talk like this very often. Wildbow does not often write dialogue like this. This is different and it feels different. And that difference allows us to feel the weight of it. On top of the subject matter itself, the writing calcifies these emotions. Look, look at how Wildbow uses the M dash in, in the, these dialogues. And I pulled out a few of them here, like four of them. Uh, she told me, um, M dash. She said, um, she said M dash. So I told her no. And I told her never to show her face in front of me again. So I'm, I'm M dash. Maybe not 100% human. Maybe my not 100% human self is going to fight like hell to save people from, from that M dash. And it chops up the dialogue. It cuts it. And it's, it's, it's an M dash is like a comma, but like more abrupt, more immediate. And, and you can almost hear the gasps of breath she must be taking after she finishes these sentences. You can almost hear the trouble she has breathing and it's so incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's painful, you know, and, and I, I do, I wonder, I mean, we were not at the end of the chapter yet, but I'm, I'm wondering like, I, I don't know if this is a good strategy with her because she could very well, like she was already not coming to therapy, you know, the guy yeah. had to like c- capture her basically. Um, and 
she could very well be like, fuck this guy. I'm, ne- I'm never going back to therapy with this guy um, based on how unpleasant this experience is for her, even though she's getting at all the stuff that needs to be drawn out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know uh, whether I think this was a good idea or not. And I'm interested to see where things go from here. So what what do you think of the Victoria? You're made of other DNA now. What do, you, what do you think of that line of thinking? Because I'm sure there's been a lot of talk amongst the fandom. It's like, oh, is she going to be part dog now? Is Rachel's going to have a bond with her? Um, I, I'm I, curious, what will you think of this? I, I So, like, my take on that is that it's almost entirely the kind of thing that would mess you up in your own mind if you knew that your body was made out of dogs and birds and bugs. Right. But, but like, if if her DNA were still like a, a, a chimera of different species, then her body would have just like fallen apart, like something out of annihilation, um, like years ago or, you know, months ago, however long it's been. Um, but instead, you know, she, she, she's normal. She heals from injuries normally. Um, her, her body feels things just fine. She doesn't seem to like get sick in any way. So like, I, I think, I think her I think whatever Panacea's power did, and Panacea may not even fully understand her own power, it made her pretty much, you know, back to back to the way she was. And yeah. and, and and yeah, there may be some like some rounding errors in there because again, Panacea didn't want to go too far, uh, like she did last time, and go for for like a kind of impossible perfection, which was the reason why she made the the wretch in the first place. Um, uh, but that that doesn't. In, in the end, the reason she's messed up about it is that that's a horrifying th- thing to know. It, yeah. It's not necessarily because it has any concrete implications. Right. Uh, and I completely agree with you. I, I think I think we need to focus on this m- metaphorically and, and what it means for Victoria's view of herself and less. Um, is this a setup for some jinky... DNA stuff later down the road. I, I I don't I don't think so. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. And then we end this section on this. Victoria says, "I'd gutted him. It was wholly satisfying, and far from being a good feeling. He'd felt something, been shaken. He was forced to reassess his perspective, and now maybe there was a chance he'd understand. These things weren't easy. They required a little bearing of the naked and vulnerable soul." revealing who and what we were. So uh, again, Victoria's kind of ignoring the fact that perhaps this is exactly the way he wanted this meeting to go. Um, and, and, and like this mindset is the only way to make him understand is to be honest with him and therefore myself for the first time. Mm-hmm. And he would probably go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I may be That's like what I was going for. Yeah. I, I may be like, putting too much of a four dimensional chess master persona on, on this new character that we've just met. But like, even the fact that he kind of like disengages and looks off into the distance, I kind of read as him just being like, okay, we've made some progress. I'm going to back off a little bit and, and and not actually that he was gutted by it necessarily. Right. She, she reads that as gutted, but he's facing away from her looking into the distance. Um, There's no real indication that he's like been totally like, totally completely destroyed by this and and again i mean 
did we get any confirmation whether this was something she specifically had discussed with Yamada before? I don't I don't think so. I, I don't think we did. And, and just like the way she has to stumble through it. Yeah, it strikes me as right. something that she hasn't talked about. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love that. So, yeah, that was that was that. So are we going to talk about the timing thing now or are we going to wait till the end of the chapter? I say we wait till the end. OK, because I think part of it part of it ties into how the end ends. OK, so now we cut back to Rain's trial for the first line being freak monster yeah for the second time in this chapter we transition from one section break to the other perfectly with a kind of a kind of tailing reference to the last one because victoria here just revealing that she doesn't feel human and we cut back to freak monster yeah yeah it's uh i love that so yeah rain's accusers have all had their say we kind of skipped over that um, but then Stacy has her say, and this is a girl that was at the mall. She knew the victims and she tells Rain um, that he was a teenager and he came from a rough place and that she forgives him. Um, and she says, I don't blame you for them dying. The people who set those fires were the ones to blame. I didn't save them. You were scared. Rain had a wet eyes. I was so stupid. You didn't have a chance to know better. What a moment, Matt. Uh, what what a moment. She she forgives him. And look look at Rain here. Look at Rain who has memorized every single person in the mall. Rain who immediately knows who Stacy's friends are. It's like, oh yeah, there's the the blonde one and then the other one, because he sees them every day. Not only not only in the cluster dream, but he has taken a point out to memorize and know every single person that he was responsible for killing. Yeah. Tell me those of you out there who hate rain. <laughs> why at this point does this person not deserve some sort of like what, what else can a person do to show that they deserve some form of redemption? I, I don't know what else, what else a person like if at this point, if we're saying that, Rain is not deserving of any kind of redemption. Then we're basically saying that there's nothing a, a man can do to to earn it, right? Yeah, right. Like I don't, I don't know what else you can do. Yeah, I, I, I think, I think, I think you're right. Like I think that the the only thing he can do is 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 not have done those bad things, right? Like, but yeah. from, from 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 a certain perspective, like if you think redemption is a thing then there has to be a circumstance under which he would offer it even to someone who did something heinous. Yeah. And, and, and like this, the, the construction of the scene is basically this guy is, is completely contrite and, and, and regretful isn't even really the same person who did those things um, for, yeah. for all kinds of different reasons for, for both like a, a humane, understandable, relatable reason and a magical alien based death powers reason. <laughs> um, and you just, yeah, I, I think I agree with you. Yeah. So then all the civilians leave and a session begins where Rain and the others supply information on Mama Mathers and Rain finally looks at ease. Um, and Victoria thinks, if only we could all have a Stacy. And that is how the chapter ends. So that old saying, Matt, that old wonderful saying to err is human to forgive divine. And 
I want to talk about this for a bit because removing any kind of spiritual significance, um, I think the meat of that quote, what, what that quote is really saying is that there is a real power in the act of forgiveness. It's this special, focused, beautiful power, a power that you and only you are granted over the people that have wronged you. We've talked before about about how forgiveness can be a powerful personal act, about if Victoria is able to forgive the people that hurt her, then that will do something for her. But we can't ignore the power of of granting that forgiveness to the people that have harmed you. And that's what we see with Rain in this chapter. He has done everything he can in response to his bad choices. He's turned himself in. He's apologized profusely. He's he's repented um, every other word you can think of. He's not making excuses. He accepts the punishment. And then Stacy stands up there and relinquishes her power to him. She forgives him. And the result, he sat up straighter and he spoke with more conviction. Something in him had been bound up that had been bound up was free in the face of his sentence and an interrogation from a staff member of the warden rain looked as at ease for the first time I'd ever seen him. That, that is the power of forgiveness. And Victoria recognizes that and she wants it too, because that's one of the big things this chapter leaves us with how much blame Victoria has for herself Yes, she blames her mom, too, absolutely. And she blames Amy, and she blames Tattletale, and she blames her the powers and the shards, yes. But she seems to blame herself almost more than any of these things. Herself for not being heroic enough, for not being fast enough, for not being aware enough. Maybe if someone could just be her, Stacy, then whatever is bound up in her will be free, too. Yeah, does that mean that she she wants someone to forgive her? I think she does. But I think, Victoria, you got to forgive yourself. I mean, that's like, you got to be your own Stacy. Yeah. <laughs> like, you, you have the power to forgive yourself, Victoria. These things that happened to you, they were not your fault. And I think the other thing that I, I'm left with when I finish this chapter is she wishes that everyone could have their Stacy. And she has that power for someone else, too. She holds that power for Amy. Mm. Does she have to give it? No, she doesn't. She doesn't have to. What Amy did, no matter the excuses, no matter the, the reasons, the justifications, what she did was horrible. It was, it was disgusting. And there's no reason Victoria ever has to relinquish that power to her sister. But if she did, if she unleashed that power of forgiveness, just look what it could do. Look what it could mean. Look, look at rain and everything rain does for the end until the end of this book. Hopefully it's good things. Hopefully it doesn't, doesn't revert to terrible things, but everything rain ends up, ends up doing for good from now on could be because someone was able to forgive him. Mm -hmm. And man, I mean, that is so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not to be too like instrumentalist about it, but, but we know for a fact that Amy has this, has this anger in, in her heart. Right. And, you know, you could either continue on having an angry, you know, simmering, you know, about to over, overboil dangerous, super dangerous cape, or you could 
you could essentially take that away. Like she, Victoria has the power to do that. And and like she you does. said, it, she doesn't owe it to her, but like wh- why wh- at a certain point, at a certain point, it's just the right thing to do. Yeah. All right. Let's. All right. So now we can talk about why we did a time jump here. So, so I am not even sure when this scene on the rooftop happened and is am i am i overlooking something or is it intentionally kind of adrift relative to the rest of the the story it it is it very specifically takes place after rain's trial mm-hmm. so a- after the events of the end of this chapter but before anything with ashley right and it it almost seems like it's been a few days like it's not the same day right um it's been a little bit of time that's that's what i was getting at is like has this been an like a number of days and something terrible has happened causing victoria to act so strangely because i really think she's acting quite differently than we've seen her from from the drop um and, and it's not like it doesn't strike me that it's like oh it's because it's on a rooftop and he made her draw a drawing yeah. It's like no, there's more going on here with there there's more reason why she's this agitated. Yeah, I I wouldn't get that complicated with it. Um I I think it absolutely could be that. My my read, my read on why this was done. Um anytime you're structuring something in a book, you're doing it because you feel this is the structure that will best make the emotional moments I want to land land. Um that I mean, why else would you why else would you change up a structure? Right. So when I look at this, when I look at how this is carved up, I see, first of all, maybe the thought that if we just do an uninterrupted rain in front of court session, that that would get a little bland. And we maybe we're a little bit worried about that. So we cut that up and don't don't keep that one note throughout the chapter. But we also have these these two kind of realizations coming from Victoria. One of them is this realization about how powerful forgiveness is. The other is this realization uh, or this this being pushed to this moment of uh, clarity of how much, um, how, how she sees herself, how less than human she sees herself. And I think they kind of build onto each other. And that's, I think... Victoria is going through a lot of shit and I think playing with the structure like she ends a chapter learning about seeing seeing how much better Rain is seeing has how how impactful this whole thing has been on him and then she goes to this therapy session and has what, what I guess we can charitably call a breakthrough um I, I don't think it's like a full-on your problems are solved, but she's made it past a point that I don't think she was able to go. Mm-hmm. So um, let's call that a breakthrough. And I, I think those two things are tied together, but I think rearranging them in this way does exactly what you, you kind of indicated, which is where is this coming from? Why is this happening? Why, why is she acting like this? And why is this driven to her? And I think getting to then go back and see possibly the instigating point of this moment where she looked upon rain and said this, this chapter ending line of if we could only all have our own Stacy. I think that is the first push on a, on a path that leads to this breakthrough. Yeah. I think this whole, this whole two chapters actually are the, 
Victoria finally begins to confront her own guilt and sense of her own culpability in all of this and the idea that she needs forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah, pretty much from the pretty much from the beginning. Yeah. Of of the, of so, the first chapter. So I mean, I I think of how this would have gone had um Wildbo just said, Okay, we'll do all the rain stuff and then we'll cut and then we'll do um we'll do the uh the therapy stuff. Yeah. And I just think that those those emotional beats wouldn't have landed as much because you go into the end of the rain section, knowing what Victoria has just learned, kind of knowing the future kind of mm-hmm. and seeing how she got there. And and the beats kind of tie into each other in this really satisfying way when you order them like this instead of ordering them the other way around, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that thematic through line is is definitely there. And I, Plus, I like I like that. Plus, like you said, um, this could kind of serve as an end of rain in the the focal side character point of the story. Um, So ending the chapter on that, I think, would make it a good shift, you know. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Structurally, that makes sense to me, too. Yeah. Yeah. That that I I I I wouldn't be surprised if we kind of have a, a bit of a break from rain, um, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't also, uh, you know, if, if something happens yeah. and he doesn't end up going to jail, but like the, the way this wraps up, is like a very satisfying, like, okay, you know, good job rain. So yeah. We'll, we'll see you later. Well, and we know Ashley's Ashley's trial is looming. Mm-hmm. So perhaps we're, that's a, that's a great transition period. We transition from rain into Ashley very naturally. Um, through the legal system mm-hmm. so maybe yeah, she'll point. be the focal the focal minor character for a bit yeah yeah that'd be that'd be awesome um all right well that that's the end of our discussion of these first two awesome chapters of arc seven torch uh let's do a little bit of name game scott and i, I want to give you the honors on this one because you you pulled this out all right so hey matt mm-hmm. do you know what stacy means mm, yeah, no well, see, it's like a shortened version of the name Anastasia, which mm. is which is Greek, and it means um, it means resurrection, Matt. Mm. So the person that offers forgiveness to Rain means resurrection. It's almost like forgiveness Rebirth. and receiving forgiveness is a form of resurrection. Yeah, it does. Or if you want to get Christian about it, the themes of resurrection and forgiveness are some of the more tightly intertwined concepts of Christianity for that matter. That's very true. Very cool. Very cool. Pull. That was cool. Feels like, feels like it's intentional. Yeah. And and on that note, a discussion question for this week, which was, I suppose, inspired by um, a discussion on our discord that was prompted by Wildbow. Um, and the question is, what's the difference between acceptance and forgiveness? I'm pretty interested to see what we get here as I ha- after Wildbow um asked this prompt in the the Discord I um had a conversation with my wife about it and realized we have very different definitions for acceptance like very different definitions to the point where we were like arguing about what <laughs> acceptance means um so I I'm very interested to see what you guys come up with Yeah pretty much everyone in the Discord was like Matt you're you're crazy you're a crazy person <laughs> I was like okay well that's fine well, 
I'm mad. I kind of agree with them a little bit. Yeah. Well, but we'll maybe we'll circle back around to that yeah. next week. We'll, we'll see what everyone else says, and <laughs> maybe someone else will have my idiosyncratic viewpoint. Um, but yeah, that's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show now, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. Um, I lost the page. There, you can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at Forgiveness. <laughs> if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. Yes, and you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. This week, uh, the Daily Planet podcast actually met. We weren't supposed to, but I was talking to Michael about Lost in Space, and we decided, let's just get on Skype and record this. So we did that, and we released an episode of... The Daily Planet podcast talking about the new Netflix show Lost in Space. Um, also on Vow to View this week, Elise made me wake up at six in the morning and watch the royal wedding. So we're going to talk about that. <laughs> Yay. Also, we've got a new episode of We've Got Weaver Dice coming sometime. Um, we're not sure exactly exactly when, but it's coming sometime. Yep. And lastly, whew, this is a busy week, Matt. Lastly, yeah. the Daily Planet Book Club will convene this Friday at 930 Central Time over on our YouTube channel. You can come talk the novel Blind Sight with us, which is one of Matt's favorite books. So it's going to be a really, really fun conversation, I think. Yes, I'm thrilled that we're doing this. Um, yeah. And if you like any of those 43 shows and you want to support <laughs> them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash Films. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art contests, Q&A sessions, access to live streams of our recording sessions, and our excellent Discord chat. Special thanks to new Planeteer Eden at the $1 level. And as always, make sure you go over to Wildbow's Patreon, patreon.com slash wildbow, and donate to him as well because this is his world and we're just playing in it. And if you can't afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by heading on over to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a rating and a review. This week's Spotlight review comes from Logslow, who gives us five stars and says, This podcast watered my plants, cleaned my skin, and filled my bank account. Finally, a place where I can hear other people dissect the themes of Worm and Ward instead of trying to do so with my friends who tune out after a few sentences of superhero stuff. Thanks, Matt and Scott. Wow, Matt. First, we're saving marriages. Now we're doing chores for people. We we really are the best. Yeah, I'm so we happy. Are. Yeah, Thank you very much, Logzo. We appreciate that. Yeah, thanks. Well, all right, that's it for the show this week. Next week, it's part two of Arc 7 Torch. I don't have a thing to say at the outro. Bad. Bad.